Good morning, and happy Gaudete Sunday. At least that is how they told me to pronounce it on Wikipedia. It means Rejoice Sunday, and I have to be honest, as I still consider myself newly ordained, I never have worn rose vestments before, so this is pretty exciting for me. And the fun and excitement and anticipation is the theme of this Sunday. It is Rejoice Sunday in the midst of the penitential season of Advent. It is a time to rejoice at the anticipation of the second coming of Christ, another topic I love to preach on, by the way. It is also a time to reflect on the rejoicing done in the anticipation of the birth of our Lord, which is why we recite Mary's song, the Magnificat, this morning, My Spirit Rejoices in God My Savior. It is also why we hear a prophetic song from Isaiah, which is full of joy and anticipation of a future messianic event. And it is this song in Isaiah is echoed in our gospel today when we get to hear once more from John the Baptist. Our journey through scriptures this morning will start with the gospel, then we'll move to the prophet Isaiah, and we'll be ending with Mary and Mary's song. James is a great book too, but we won't focus on that today. In the gospel today, we start with John the Baptist, who I admit I love deeply. I think he is someone whose smell would jolt me more than his words. I think he gets a bad rap for being a firebrand prophet, but what he preaches, though radical, is also quite reasonable. In the gospel according to Luke, we read John's teaching is this, if you have two coats, give the one, to, give the one you're not using to the one in need. Do likewise with your food. Don't exploit or cheat people. Don't abuse your position. Compared to Jesus, who says, if someone sues you for your cloak, give your shirt also, and if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other, compared to that, John the Baptist is quite reasonable. But John does what gets many saints, martyrs, and prophets in trouble. He speaks truth to power, and he finds himself in this gospel arrested by King Herod. And it is from jail he sends his disciples to ask a very honest and a very human question. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? I'm going to call it. I've asked this question before myself. And I do believe it to be a healthy question in any authentic spiritual journey. Jesus Christ, are you what you say you are? I love this question from John the Baptist because it reveals something consistently problematic for us as human beings. And that is, where and how do we see the living God in other human beings? Many of us, even my agnostic friends, will say that they see God in the sunset. And one of my atheist friends says he comes closest to believing in God when he sees pictures of the infinite vastness of space. And we've all had moments in wilderness or nature where we've seen something and spoke to ourselves, holy, 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 Lord God. But it's always more difficult in the day-to-day -day dealings with people, and especially when dealing with those who are different from us, where we see and experience the presence of God. What are our expect expectations of God showing up in other people? And what are our expectations of a Messiah? John the Baptist appears to have difficulty with this too, and so we get this question. And I love Jesus' response. It's very loving and yet firm. 
He doesn't get angry at the question, but answers using scripture, using this passage from Isaiah, which he knows that John the Baptist would be familiar with. It's scripture, not our feelings, not society's judgments, not political statements or sentiments. Scripture, our sacred stories, is used as the recalibration for how we are to discern where the living God is in humanity. Again, it is scripture and our sacred stories that are to be used as a recalibration for how to discern where the living God is in humanity. Jesus reminds John about what is taking place. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. The prophet Isaiah goes further using poetic language of pools of water and flowers coming in the desert. The prophet declares, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. The theme in scripture, indeed the theme of scripture whenever we're talking about the kingdom of God, is the upending, the reversal. Make the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Those who have fear, tell them to be strong. It's a reversal of order, what I like to call the topsy-turvy kingdom of God. And this theme is made manifest so clearly in another saint we mentioned today in our scriptures, Mother Mary. So growing up in Episcopalian in Virginia, Mary was not much more than the leading role in the children's pageant. And I grew up being taught uh, that God is just as much a heavenly mother as a heavenly father. So I grew up with the feminine already in the, uh, the Godhead. So I really never had much need of a heavenly mother, so to speak. Plus, where I grew up, any devotion to Mother Mary was seen as a Roman Catholic thing. And to this day, I still have my reservations of uh, my devotion to Mary. However, as I continually am formed in diaconal spirituality, Mother Mary has become more and more of a saint worthy of devotion. Not just because she is the mother of Jesus, which is a pretty big deal, but also because of her faithfulness, her sorrow and pain, and ultimately her joy in God. Mother Mary is quite young and unmarried when she becomes pregnant with Jesus, and while Joseph finally comes around after divine intervention, her story that God made her pregnant was probably just as believable then as it is today. She would have carried the burden of a great deal of shame. Indeed, this is probably the main catalyst for her visit to her cousin Elizabeth. Scandal in a small village is an inescapable social disease. However, it is Elizabeth, her cousin, who has just experienced the miracle of pregnancy in old age, with John the Baptist, mind you, who is able to detect the blessedness of this pregnancy, something the rest of the world seems to miss. Mary's shame and the scandal of Jesus' birth follows her and Jesus all their lives. In the Gospel according to Mark, Jesus is referred negatively as the son of Mary. He should be, have been described as the son of Joseph. Mother Mary is a woman who knows shame and scandal, and yet through it all, she remained faithful. It is a cruel irony that given the vulnerable state of Mary as an unwed pregnant mother, the church throughout time has been so judgmental and outright abusive to women, women who find themselves in the same state. The church and those of proper society failed to see what scripture sees clearly. In every pregnant woman, in every baby born, there we find the presence of the living God.
Later in Mary's story, we know that because of King Herod's rage and jealousy when he hears of a prophesied king born in Bethlehem, he commences the unspeakable horror of the slaughter of all male babies under the age of two, the slaughter of the innocents. Joseph, in a dream, is warned of this crime against God and humanity and flees with Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt as refugees. Joseph's profession is a carpenter, which would be equivalent to our day laborers today. So the financial family state is one of poverty, precariousness, and on top of that, they are refugees. Mother Mary knows what it is like to fear for her child's life, knows the uncertainty and fear of being a stranger in a strange land. She knows what it is to be poor, powerless, and an outsider. Sadly, throughout the history, the church and its self-proclaimed followers of Jesus have drifted towards fear and nationalism from time to time and have been judgmental, suspicious, and downright abusive towards refugees and outsiders. Indeed, the long history of Christian programs and the Inquisition show how Christians of the past have treated Jewish refugees and residents. And still today, nations and political stances that claim Christian values still have a tendency to see the refugee as an object of suspicion and fear. Throughout history, we as Christians have failed to recalibrate our sight through scripture and to see the Holy Family in the stranger and the refugee. And yet, in crowded migrant boats off Italy, in crowded camps of Syrian refugees, or Christian Palestinian family who are refugees in Pennsylvania, we are shown here is the presence of the living God. Mother Mary had a complicated relationship with her son. Jesus listens to her at the wedding of Cana, but is also not the most affectionate son always. When the disciples tell Jesus his mother and brothers are right outside, he responds, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of God is my mother or brother. Well, if that isn't a slap in the face, I don't know what is. Mother Mary knows what it is like to be hurt by her child. Joseph is gone by the time Jesus gets to adulthood, whether by death or that Joseph had to leave, she no longer has Joseph as a companion. And we know on Good Friday, Mary experiences another gut-wrenching loss as she sees her son tortured and executed. Mary knows what it's like to suffer profound grief, sorrow, and loss through the death of a spouse and the death of a child. So often in scripture, prophets are the ones pointing out pointing to the poor, the outcast, the widow, the sorrowful, and saying, it's these we need to care for, and rightly so. But Mother Mary is different. She is the object of shame. She is the widow. She is the powerless one. She is the one in grief. And she is the one with whom God has favor. She is the one with whom God makes his home. Scripture not only points out that here in Mother Mary is the presence of God, but also points out that this nobody, this woman, points her out and declares, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are you among women. 
What I find most profound about Mary and why her song is so important on this Sunday is that despite her story, despite all the pain, the loss, the fear, the uncertainty, what she is remembered for when they are compiling the Gospel of Luke, her song they remember is not a song of lament, but a song of rejoicing. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's song is one of rejoicing, of praise, of absolute adoration, despite the pain and cruelty she experiences in this world. And on this third Sunday of Advent, as we prepare, is not this the kind of rejoicing that we need? Not a rejoicing from the avoidance of of pain or the numbing of pain, which really isn't rejoicing, but a rejoicing that sees joy and blessedness despite every circumstance we find ourselves in. And so if Mary does pray for us, which I would think she does, I think the prayer I ask she prays for us this day is, Mary, like you, pray that we can rejoice in the Lord no matter where we find ourselves in life, and pray that we may see Jesus, Joseph, and you in the least among us. On this Rejoice Sunday, may God, through Holy Scripture and the lives of the saints, open our eyes to see the presence of the living God in all people around us, especially the outcast and the powerless with who God makes his home. And may we with them and all the saints declare on this day and on that last day, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Amen.